in the horror genre. I'm your host, Nicole, and it's time to share another dark tale. Today we're going to cover a subject that's a little bit unique. Instead of the supernatural elements that so often characterize horror, we are going to talk about some man-made disasters, specifically man-made disasters caused by the energy industry, both coal and nuclear. This particular episode was really inspired by HBO's recent series Chernobyl, but I'm going to be also talking about uh, both Silent Hill and The Hills Have Eyes, which both have energy disasters at their the core of their plot. So before we dig into those, I want to start with just, just a brief history of the element of fire, because all, all of these energy sources, ultimately, they boil down to our harnessing of fire. And on history.com, it says, Fire control changed the course of human evolution, allowing our ancestors to stay warm, cook food, ward off predators, and venture into harsh climates. It also had important social and behavioral implications, encouraging groups of people to gather together and stay up late. Despite the significance of kindling flames, when and where human ancestors learned how to do it remains a subject of debate and speculation. So we're not even sure when or where or how humans discovered fire. And because of that, there's a little bit of an element of mystery around it. And so we've always had a little bit of mystery surrounding our energy sources. Because fire ultimately has great power to both give life and destroy it. And because of that, we've always feared it just a little bit. And even in the early days of, you know, developing major cities, fires were a huge hazard. Um, One little fire could easily spread to entire blocks, entire cities, and destroy much of what we had built. The first major energy industry was the coal mine industry, which is still around today, but not like it used to be. And coal brought light and warmth into our homes, much like early fire did. But of course, you know, it has its hazards. And um, people working in the mine were exposed to all kinds of chemicals that resulted in reduction in life expectancy, respiratory hospital admissions, black lung from coal dust, congestive heart failure, chronic bronchitis, and the list goes on and on just from being exposed to so many chemicals. This brings us to the first disaster that I wanna talk about and that is the Centralia, Pennsylvania fire. In 1962, a fire broke out in one of the mines in Centralia, Pennsylvania, and it was unchecked and it continued to burn and it eventually led to the evacuation of the entire town in 1983 due to the toxic chemicals 
coming out of the fire. And that particular fire inspired Silent Hill, which we're going to talk about in a little bit more depth later. So Centralia was evacuated, fully evacuated in 1983, and the 80s were just kind of a rough time for energy and technology in general. In January of 1986, the Challenger space shuttle disaster happened. The Challenger was a mission that included astronauts, researchers, and even a civilian, a teacher was on board. And the space shuttle launch took off and it exploded just a couple minutes after it took off. And Americans watched this live on television. That particular tragedy really struck a chord. That was in January of 86. And then in April of 86 is when Chernobyl happened. And of course the world kind of slowly learned about Chernobyl. But needless to say, the 80s were a very kind of ominous time for technology. The Cold War was happening. You know, I think we were learning a lot. We were trying a lot of new things. And so it was kind of um, just a little bit of a, of a challenging time in uncharted territory. But before we really delve into the 80s and the nuclear age, um, I want to rewind a little bit and really dig into the Centralia disaster because it's really fascinating and it's maybe the most interesting ghost town that we have here in America. And it's definitely on my spooky bucket list. Um, I want to take a road trip with my mom and visit all of these spooky locations in America. And Centralia is definitely on the list. So as I mentioned, in 1962, a fire started in Centralia. And um, it's disputed as to exactly how that fire started but long story short, the fire got into one of the abandoned coal mines and that just started this chain reaction of fire in the mines. That fire burned and burned and burned, burned for a couple of decades. And in 1983, the government decided to evacuate the town. They were like, it's not safe to live here. Everybody got to get out. <laughs> if you look at pictures of Centralia, it's it's pretty creepy. Like there aren't a lot of buildings left. There's one church left that's actually really beautiful. And um, it had to have inspired the church in Silent Hill because they're, they're very similar looking. But the um, this the road into town, the pavement's all cracked and there's like steam coming up from it and people have graffitied the road. So it's a very creepy place. And I actually was aware of Silent Hill as a property before I was aware of Centralia. So when I found out it was a real place, I was just like, wow, this is amazing. So let's dig into Silent Hill a little bit. And here's a synopsis because I've learned that I'm actually not very good at recapping things on my own. So this was pulled from IMDb. Rose and Chris's adopted daughter, Sharon, suffers from dangerous sleepwalking episodes during which she often speaks about the ghost town Silent Hill. Desperate to help her child, Rose takes Sharon to Silent Hill where she and a concerned police officer become trapped in an alternate reality of Ash, monsters and cultists while chris searches for his wife and daughter in the real world rose conducts a parallel investigation into the horrific truth of sharon's history in silent hill so we are with rose trying to uncover the kind of mysterious past that her daughter has in silent hill and she has a car crash that kind of knocks her out and when she wakes up she's at this sign for the city of Silent Hill and it's this like really beautiful quiet 
place, kind of ghostly, foggy. There's this constant stream of ash coming down and it's, it's really beautiful in the beginning. But then ever so often this horrific siren goes off and everything turns dark and peely and there are monsters and it's just, it's like a hellscape basically. And then if you can like, you know, manage to stay alive during that time, everything oh, will switch back to the beautiful ghostly ash. And so what you find out is if you haven't seen Silent Hill, I'm sure you have. If you haven't seen it, maybe skip ahead. But what you find out is that there is a religious cult in the town of Silent Hill that believes a young girl named Alessa is a witch because she was conceived out of wedlock. So this cult attempted to burn the girl, but an accident caused the fire that ultimately led to the coal fire that still burns beneath the town. And so the vengeful spirit of Alessa has now caused Silent Hill to be split into two realities. So there's the real town, which is just a ghost town, much like Centralia. And then there is this like purgatory world that has been created for those who abused their power and attempted to sacrifice Alessa. And this purgatory world is where Rose and Sharon are. So ultimately Rose enables Alessa to exact her revenge and bring judgment upon those who abuse their position of power and attempted to sacrifice her. And Rose and Sharon are able to escape the carnage, and it is carnage. The last scene where Alessa takes her revenge on this religious cult is really horrific. But Rose and Sharon are allowed to escape that, and they are allowed to leave Silent Hill. However, although Rose triumphs and was able to save her daughter, the horrific consequences of the cult's actions cannot be escaped entirely. So we watch them drive out of Silent Hill, but yet the ghostly fog and the ash is still falling all the way home. And the dreamlike world of Silent Hill follows them home. And so we're left to believe that their reality will never again be the same. So basically, even though they were able to set things right, the people who wielded this power and unleashed it have now changed the world forever. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> so as we discussed, coal mines have many health hazards. Um, it also takes a lot of work to harvest the coal, and it's also a finite resource. So technology was destined to kind of evolve past that and give us other forms of energy. And nuclear energy is perhaps the most advanced of those solutions. I'm going to give you guys just a quick rundown of kind of the history of nuclear energy because I wasn't sure I was thinking about, you know, we have the bomb, we have nuclear reactors, like what came first, what came when, how did this all shake out, how did it all develop? And so in 1932, atomic energy was discovered. Physicist Ernest Rutherford discovered that when lithium atoms were split by protons from a proton accelerator, immense amounts of energy were released in accordance with the principle of mass energy equivalence. However, he and other nuclear physicists like Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein believed harnessing the power of the atom for practical purposes anytime in the near future was unlikely. That was 1932. So 10 years later, 1942, the first nuclear reactor was created as part of the Manhattan Project. And of course, the Manhattan Project was the large undertaking by the US government to create the atomic bomb. So in 1945, the first nuclear weapon was detonated at the Trinity Test in New Mexico. 
again under the Manhattan Project. And then the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings took place one month later. That's fast. So then after the war, 1948, electricity was generated by a reactor for the first time in Tennessee. And then in 1954, the first nuclear power plant was opened in the Soviet Union. So all of this happened in a relatively short time. Um, 32 to 42, of course, is a bigger span. But then from 42 to 54, we're like clipping right along, just making advancements in nuclear energy. I have always been a little fascinated and a little terrified by nuclear energy. And I think uh, most people are. I think that nuclear energy is scary for two main reasons. One, the first time we ever used it was for the most devastating weapon in history. That is the first time we as humans saw an expression of nuclear power was to wipe out cities in war. Number two is because it's an invisible threat. Like we know it's lethal, but we can't see it. So it's kind of this, again, it goes back to that initial mystery of fire. It's this invisible ghostly thing that we know is harmful, but we we can't see it coming after us. We don't know what it's doing to us. And that makes it scary. So our fear and anxiety about nuclear weapons and nuclear energy were apparent pretty quickly in media. There were lots of like giant radioactive bug movies in the 50s. The most famous of those was probably Them. It's Them with an exclamation point. And that's the movie about the giant ants. They're basically, these giant ants were creating by the nuclear testing in New Mexico. I mean, that's a direct line. That's not subtle at all. And that was in 1954. And then also in 1954, we got Godzilla, the Japanese monster movie. Godzilla was disturbed from his underwater slumber due to nuclear testing. And he rises up and he destroys the city. And another interesting thing about Godzilla, I did not think of this. I heard this somewhere else. They said that, of course, we bomb Japan in 45. And then less than 10 years later, Japan comes out with Godzilla. Godzilla's this big monster that rolls up due to nuclear energy, destroys the city. But as time goes on, Godzilla becomes a friend to Japan. And Godzilla eventually helps the Japanese people fight other monsters. And it's very much a representation of Japanese-American relations. We were this enemy, we destroyed your city, and eventually we become allies and we help each other and we protect each other. And I just think that is so fascinating. If you don't believe that media, and particularly horror media, is a reflection of society, you just are not paying attention. It's been this way for decades. So moving on to some modern depictions of nuclear tragedy. Uh, first, I want to talk about the remake of Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes, which came out in 2006. I have always really liked this film, but viewing it through the lens of a nuclear fear gives it even more meaning. So in The Hills Have Eyes, Bob Carter and his wife Ethel, along with five other family members, are headed for San Diego with their camper vans. An accident strands them in the desert, and while two of the men go for help, the others are forced to wait. They're unaware that they've ended up stuck near the site where, decades earlier, 
Nuclear tests gave rise to a group of mutant monsters who have developed a taste for human flesh. That is right, people. We have radioactive cannibals in this movie in New Mexico. Kind of like the ants from them, but people. These mutant monsters, they are, they're all deformed in some way because they've lived in this radioactive area for decades. So they all have deformities and are physically monstrous. Now, one thing that is very important to this plot is the culture clash between Bob, who is the dad, and Doug, who is the son-in-law. So Bob is a traditional, like, stand your ground, defend your family type. And Doug just, like, isn't buying into that traditional ideology. Like, he's clearly uncomfortable around guns. Like, he would rather just, like, keep the peace. Once the men have, like, gone out for help and darkness comes, the family is brutally attacked in their camper. Like, half of the family is killed, and there's a little baby with them, and that baby is, like, taken away by these monstrous cannibals. So interestingly enough, Bob, the dad, is one of the first to be killed, and Doug, the son-in-law, is the only one who's really left to defend the family and rescue his baby from these, like, cannibalistic attackers. So there's irony for you. So Doug makes his way to the home base of the cannibals and has to exact what can only be described as extreme violence on them in order to save his child and protect his family. And when I say extreme violence, I'll give you a little context. So Alex Aja directed this, and he is from the new French extremity school. Uh, The French, especially in the early to mid-2000s, were bringing, like, new levels of beauty to gore and just like they were bringing it so this movie is very gory so violence aside of course we sympathize and root for doug because these people have killed his wife and stolen his baby however there is this one really interesting moment of sympathy for this radioactive family I wish there was like a better way to refer to them, but radioactive cannibals is just the best way to refer to them. So Doug encounters Big Brain, who is the leader of the family, in their house. He has this like grotesquely misshapen head, of course, again, due to the radiation his his family has endured over the decades. And just before things get like really, really violent, Big Brain gives this short speech that makes us pause for just a moment and kind of see these monsters as a regular family who just wanted to stay in their homes and be left alone. And this moment also reminds me of, I think it's episode four in Chernobyl, when the old woman who is milking the cow basically says, I've lived here my whole life. I've seen many kinds of destruction from many invaders. Who are you to come here and tell me to leave? people asked our families to leave their town and you destroyed our homes we went into the mines you set off your bombs and turned everything to ashes you made us what we've become Boom. 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 I'm 
sure people didn't really think about this at the time when this movie came out in 2006, and I don't know if the filmmakers intended this. I mean, Wes Craven's a really smart filmmaker. I don't know about everybody else involved in this, but I think The Hills Have Eyes is just a fantastic metaphor for the really difficult choice America had to make in dropping the bomb on Japan. Um, America didn't want to be involved in World War II, like Doug, the son-in-law, would rather just keep the peace and let everybody live their life. But after we were attacked, we struck back and we struck back really hard. Like the bloody revenge exacted in The Hills Have Eyes, the morality of that choice is up for debate. Some people say it had to be done. Some people say it was a great evil. And this film definitely raises questions about the links we will go to to defend our own people and challenges us to consider, you know, at what point do we become like the enemy? So The Hills Have Eyes is a direct product of the early days of nuclear testing and the violent content of the film reflects the severity of a nuclear weapon. But luckily for the whole world, after we put World War II away, we decided that nuclear energy should be and could be put to good use. So since the 50s, Nuclear energy has been used to power our cities rather than destroy our cities. Hopefully it stays that way. And all of the threat is different. It is still terrifying. And that brings us to Chernobyl. I have kind of a unique perspective on Chernobyl and the city of Pripyat because I went to college in Russellville, Arkansas where there is a nuclear power plant. You could look out your dorm window and see the nuclear reactor. When you drive down I-40 and you pass Russellville, like there it is. So growing up in Arkansas, this nuclear power plant is just a fixture, it's just part of life. You don't really think about it. I mean, I do remember um, the first week of my freshman year, I remember my roommate, cause you know, they give you like all the safety stuff just in college in general, breakdown of campus, all that stuff. And we were sitting in our dorm room one night and my roommate was like, wait, like what's the plan if there's a nuclear meltdown? And I was like, there is no plan. Like you get in your car and you drive away as fast as you can. There is no plan. <laughs> and that was the first time I had ever really thought about like, what would we do if something went wrong? And so these people in Pripyat that lived next to the Chernobyl power plant, it was just another power plant. They weren't too worried about it because A, it was a part of their everyday life, but also they didn't really understand the danger because there hadn't been an accident like the one they were about to experience. For those of you who may not be familiar with the miniseries or even the disaster, um, Chernobyl dramatizes the story of the April 1986 nuclear plant disaster, which occurred in the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, telling the stories of the people who caused the disaster and those who responded to it. The series depicts some of the lesser known stories of the disaster, including the efforts of the firefighters who were the first responders on the scene, volunteers, and teams of miners tasked with digging a critical tunnel under Reactor 4. The miniseries is based in large part on the recollections of Pripyat locals as told in the book Voices from Chernobyl. 
I have always been fascinated by this tragedy. However, I didn't really know much about it. I didn't know what caused it. I knew that it was a huge disaster and that it was basically a ghost town now. And so when I heard that HBO was doing a show about it, I was like, I am all in. And I was not disappointed. This show is like historical fiction at its best. It takes this multi-layered, complicated event that included a lot of people and really smartly and efficiently condensed it down into five episodes without feeling like we missed anything. It's beautiful. Not only is it beautiful, it's also terrifying. Um, It's not a horror show. It's just, I guess, a drama, a docudrama, if you want to call it that. But it is. It's, It's one of the scariest things I've seen in a long time. And I think what really makes the show terrifying is our knowledge of what nuclear fallout does to people and how dangerous it really is and how the people who lived and worked there didn't maybe really understand the gravity of what they were up against. Those moments that terrify us are when we watch people expose themselves to these great dangers. And in some cases, the people that exposed themselves knew what they were doing, and it's it's all that more impactful and heroic when we realize that they know what they're facing. Um, but two moments in particular that really stand out to me are in the first episode when the engineer is he's in the meeting with two of the higher-ups and he's telling them the core is gone and they're like, no, you're an idiot. It can't be gone. And they ask him to go up to the roof and look down into the reactor and report back what you see. And I just remember thinking, oh gosh. And his face kind of drops and you know he knows, but he does it. He does his duty. He goes up there on that roof and when he is up there on that roof, and there's smoke and the wind and everything is like dark and the music is big and he walks over and he looks down into the reactor and it's like we're looking down into the reactor (sighs) so scary and then when he gets back down to the conference room with the higher-ups his face is already showing signs of burns And we just really know what kind of ride we're in for with this show. It definitely, it shows the effects of radiation burns, which is, which is very, it's gory and it's scary. Um, But they also do this very smart thing where at one point, uh, one of the scientist interviews, one of the engineers, and we don't get to see him. And then later on, she tells the main scientist that his face was gone. And that's a stroke of genius. We didn't need to see it. You know, we didn't need to see it. That one little line told us everything we needed to know. And another scene in that show that I think is just really brilliant storytelling and horror is when we follow the man, uh, the roof liquidator, and we follow him on his 90 seconds again on the roof. Something about that roof just really struck a chord with me. Anytime somebody's up on that roof, I'm just like, oh, So when we follow the roof liquidator and we're watching him shovel, and again, he's shoveling over that edge and we're looking over that edge down into the reactor and it's like, oh gosh. And I just kept thinking, has it been 90 seconds? It's gotta be 90 seconds. It's longer than 90 seconds. What's this guy doing? It's been 90 seconds. Ugh, just a brilliant little piece of storytelling. 
And Chernobyl is fresh, and I usually don't like to talk about fresh media because I feel like we don't, we haven't had the time to sit with it and think about it and really extract the larger meaning. But Chernobyl is just such an impactful show that it can't be ignored, and it's what inspired this episode in the first place. I do think that it immediately offers some things outside of the the Soviet government commentary. That's obvious in the show. But in the scope of what we're talking about here today, I think it offers a couple of things. The first thing it offers is something that Silent Hill and The Hills Have Eyes maybe don't offer, and that is hope. In Chernobyl, we get to see the very worst, but also the very best of mankind. The people who selflessly go into dangerous situations knowing they will probably die in order to serve not only the people in their country, but the people around the world is amazing. And you just, you cannot believe that people are willing to do these things knowing they're going to die. And so the whole accident happened because of the worst in humankind But the story is redeemed by the best of mankind. And so that's why I think it offers us hope. But it also offers us a warning. It reminds us that ultimately we are not in control of this power, despite all of our safeguards, and that things can go very wrong very quickly and have huge consequences, like ultimate consequences. And with those ultimate consequences, we've kind of come full circle right back to what we talked about at the beginning, which is the mystery of fire. We learned how to harness it and use it in our communities. We learned how to use it against our enemies, but we really don't understand it fully and we certainly can't control it. Control is an illusion. And if we ever forget that, there's a radioactive tomb in the Ukraine and a toxic fire in Pennsylvania to remind us. There was nothing sane about Chernobyl. What happened there, what happened after, even the good we did, all of it, all of it, madness. If this subject intrigues you the same way it has intrigued me, there are a couple more things that you can check out. There is both a movie and a TV show about the Manhattan Project. The movie is called Fat Man and Little Boy. I think it came out in like the 90s and it stars Paul Newman and John Cusack. I first watched it in high school and really liked it. Um, I tried to watch it again recently and didn't love it as much. I think it hasn't maybe aged as well as I had hoped, but it's still definitely worth a watch. The TV show is simply called Manhattan, Uh, came out a few years ago. There are two seasons. Um, I haven't gotten to watch the second season yet, but I'm excited about it. And it chronicles, again, the the creation of the first atomic bomb and kind of the, the family dynamics around that and the politics around that. It's very interesting. And if you're a Stranger Things fan, it stars David Harbour. It's the first thing I ever saw him in. So if you're a fan of... Sheriff Hopper, check out Manhattan. There are also some podcasts you can listen to. The first one is simply called the Chernobyl Podcast. 
it is a companion piece to the show. So it's the creator, Craig Mazin, along with a co-host, and they go episode by episode and talk about what it took to create the show, how much research went into it, what is factual, what was tweaked for dramatic purposes. It's very interesting. It's kind of a combo between an entertainment podcast and a history podcast. It's very informative. And as usual, there are some no sleep podcast episodes that you can listen to. One of them is called My Dad Was a Safety Officer at Chernobyl, and it chronicles the meltdown. And there is like a creature that lives in the nuclear meltdown. It's very creepy. And there is another one called Containment Failure. And it's about, you know, a nuclear incident in a small town. Simple but effective. Coming up on the podcast, we have some things that I am excited about. In September, I am going to be doing an episode on the Boogeyman. I'll be talking about some fairy tales, some slashers, and about Pennywise the Clown from It. Uh, I don't know if I'll be going full on into It Chapter 2, but I will be talking about Pennywise. And then in October, we're going to be moving on to spooky season, and I will be having some guests on the show. I am going to have Natalie, who was on my Women in Horror episode. I will have the guys from Straight Chillin', and then I will have Sunny, who does all of my artwork, all my illustration. And I'm going to be talking to all of them about what their favorite spooky season movies are. So I'm going to try to release that a little earlier in the month, so you'll have plenty of time to check out their recommendations. As usual, thanks for tuning in. Until next time. Thanks for tuning in. You can find the show on Instagram and Facebook at Light and Shadow Pod. Sign up to become a supporter on Patreon for early access to all episodes and more. Please rate, review, and subscribe to help other people find the show. Until next time, stay spooky. Spooky.